I'm sure that it is no surprise to you as we are coming up this week on Valentine's Day that Valentine's Day is almost upon us. We've already been hearing a number of commercials for a while about Valentine's Day. What is a little weird or ironic this year for us in the life of the church is that Valentine's Day falls directly on the very first day of Lent or getting ready for Lent, which is Ash Wednesday. So it's kind of a weird paradox of the two of Valentine's Day on the one hand, Ash Wednesday on the other. And maybe that's not so weird when you think about the nature of God's love when compared to how we often present the idea of love as found through Valentine's Day. I will admit to you this morning, Valentine's Day is really not one of my favorite days. There's just something about roses that cost three times as much as they normally do and overpriced chocolate and overpriced dinner packages and all kinds of things that I really don't resonate a whole lot with. But lest you think I'm totally... uh, not romantic at all. I do want to confess to you, I do appreciate the opportunity to express appreciation in my case to Jen and to be romantic that way. Uh, For a variety of reasons, Jen and I were actually engaged. Now, it's hard to believe this year marks 20 years ago that Jen and I got engaged on a Valentine's Day. And again, that was for a variety of reasons. So, you know, I'm not completely unromantic. But again, the more pessimistic side of me just can't stand the consumerism of it all. In a lot of ways, to me, it does feel like a manufactured holiday so that chocolate companies and rose companies and card companies can have a little extra income. But however you look at it, Valentine's Day does give us an opportunity to come here this morning and do something a little bit different. We're going to take just today to pause a little bit and focus on this idea of love and specifically love in marriage and specifically love with our spouse. And we want to take some time to examine that carefully with one another and understand the importance of the relationships that we have, specifically in marriage. And again, we're going to take some time just to do that today because starting next week, we're going to start a new journey as we move into Lent and all that comes with that as we get ready for Easter. But today, what does it mean and look like to have a healthy marriage? Because marriage is something that affects all of us. I want to be really clear on this here this morning. Before you tune out and think, well, I'm not married, so this doesn't apply to me, I want to say very clearly that healthy marriages affect everyone, married and unmarried alike. Again, healthy marriages affect everyone, married and unmarried alike. If you are married, marriage affects you, right? I mean, that's a pretty obvious one. But if you are not married, your life is affected as well by marriage. If you are not married and you're particularly young, there's a good chance you will be married someday. So I hope that you'll listen this morning to what we're talking about and that you can apply that when the time comes. If you are single and you plan on never getting married, you are here and odds are that for a number of you, your parents were married. And so in that way, you are a product of marriage. So marriage has already affected you. If you are here this morning and your parents were not married or they didn't have a healthy marriage or maybe that they were divorced, then you know firsthand the pain that comes from not having a healthy marriage and what that begins to look like. If you are here and you are a widow or a widower, you know the loss that comes from one that you loved, hopefully, in a healthy marriage. If you are not married, but you have friends or brothers and sisters or nieces and nephews who are married, their marriage is going to impact your life. If you are not married and the person sitting behind you or in front of you is married, Ultimately, that has a way of impacting our life. And above all of this, with all the things that I've said, even if we are not married, everything that we're going to talk about here this morning applies not just to our human relationship with our spouse, but it also applies in our walk with God. 
and our relationship with Christ. So every question we ask about another person can also be applied to Christ. As if all of that is still not enough, there is abundant evidence out there that indicates that our culture is most healthy when it's built upon healthy families and healthy marriage units. There is indisputable evidence that the stronger our families and marriages are, the healthier our society becomes. So all of that to say, marriage, especially healthy marriage, affects all of us one way or another, directly or indirectly. So keeping all of that in mind here this morning, I want to ask us to jump into what is shared with us in the book of Ephesians chapter chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up with me. If you want to look them up on your phone, your smartphone, please do that as well. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 is the longest text and the most famous text in all of the Bible on the subject of marriage. And interestingly, it's written by Paul. Paul was not married. But he thought and realized, and God led him, that marriage was important enough that he knew he needed to spend some significant time in Scripture on it and share it with us so that we could have an idea of what constitutes a healthy marriage. So if you look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, I want to ask you to look at that verse first. Even though Paul is talking here about the human relationship of marriage, he's also very, very clear that this is a metaphor for us to look at when it comes to our walk with God. He even says, Ephesians 5, 32, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So human relationship, human marriage, yes, but even more so it's about this relationship between us and Christ because we are the church. There is so much to explore in this passage, and I wish we had time to look at all of it. We don't here this morning. What we are going to do, though, is be super practical. Now, there are a lot of times, I will admit to you, you can walk away and say, Matt, talked a long time today. There was nothing practical at all to take with us. Today, that is absolutely not the case. If nothing else, you're going to have some direct handy things to be able to take with you, and I hope learn from and use again in our walk, our relationship, our marriage to someone else, and specifically our walk to Christ. This is about as practical as we can get when it comes to sermons. In fact, here's what I want to ask you to do. In your notes on the newsletter that you got this morning, there should be an insert, and I'm going to ask you very specifically, a lot of you fill in the blanks each week, which is great, but even beyond that today, in the life reflection section, there are four statements, and as we go throughout the sermon time together, I'm going to ask you to rate yourself on each of these four statements, and I'll tell you when to do it, and I'll give you some background so you know what you're filling in. My hope is that you will fill that out for yourself, number one. Number two, you will sometime today or this week talk with your spouse if you are married about it. Number three, spend some time praying on those things. And the same thing applies in your walk with Christ. So you are going to literally have something to take with you to look at and to chew on. So whether you are married or not, I want to ask us to listen up and do everything that we can to cultivate healthy marriages with humans, and also in our walk with God. First of all, I want to ask you to look. Here's how the passage begins. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Look what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I will admit to you, there is a part of me when I read that statement that's like, oh, why does it have to start that way? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But I want to ask us this morning, because when we, when we hear that word submit, there is something in us that immediately associates weakness or being taken advantage of. But I don't want us to be distracted by that word here this morning. In fact, look specifically at the second half of the verse that submit leads us into. It says submit, but then what? 
out of reverence for Christ. This reverence for Christ is key. When we recognize reverence for Christ, we discover a power that will fuel us for a healthy marriage. So the first thing I want to encourage us to do here this morning in cultivating healthy marriages with our spouse or with Christ himself is this. Number one, recognize where the power to serve in marriage comes from. It comes out of reverence for Christ. None of us every day feel like submitting or serving one another. We don't every day, every second of the day, feel emotionally like serving somebody else. So we recognize that something greater has to be going on, specifically a reverence for Christ that will give us a power to love and to serve that comes from beyond ourselves. For me, this is one of the most logical reasons why it's good for folks to be married in the presence of God in the church body, because no matter how in love folks are on their wedding day, and I've done a lot of weddings, nobody comes to their wedding day dreading it. They're excited, and they're going to have a great life together, and that's the whole reason they're coming together to be married. But I can guarantee you, for every single one of those folks, as much as they are in love on their wedding day, the day will come when their own human strength will fail. Their own human love will fail. And my hope and my prayer is that for folks married in the presence of God, when our own love begins to fail, that then we will still be connected to the reservoir of God's love and that that love will give us a reverence in Christ so that we can still continue to serve each other even when our own love runs out and fails. There is a direct link to being filled with reverence in Christ and what it means to be living in a good marriage. Because reverence will always lead us beyond ourselves to be continue to be willing to serve even when we don't feel like it. I probably shouldn't even lift up this analogy to you because it's so uh, almost opposite of who I tend to be. But I'm going to anyhow because I find it to be helpful. I hope it's helpful to you. I like to think about this whole concept in relation to putting oil in an engine, specifically with the pistons. My wife will tell you I am no mechanic. I'm about the opposite, as you can get, as being a mechanic. But I do know this. I know that you need oil for the engine to continue to run. I know that engines get hot. There's a lot of moving parts. There's increased friction and heat and tension. And unless there's oil in there to help all of those moving parts keep moving you're going to run into problems. I even had a friend a long time ago, his car broke down. You know why? He didn't realize you were supposed to put oil in the car every so often, and literally all the parts locked up from the heat and the tension and the friction. We need the oil and the moving parts of our relationships with each other and in our marriages. Tensions are going to rise. Moving parts of kids and jobs and bills and stressors are going to arise. What will help us absorb the tension and the heat and the friction when it rises? This reverence in Christ leading to a servant's heart. How do you know if you have this reverence? How do you know if you have a servant's heart? Again, we could spend a long time on this, but to make it simple today, I'm going to give us just three quick questions. Answering these questions are going to let us know very quickly if I do or do not have a servant's heart. Number one, do I have the ability to hear criticism, especially from our spouse, without being crushed or ticked off or frustrated? The truth is, for many of us, our egos are so fragile and we are so sensitive that even the person who loves us the most, we have trouble receiving any critical feedback from them. So 
Do I have that ability? Number two, do I have the ability to give criticism in a healthy way, especially to our spouse, without crushing them in the process? Are we able to share feedback in an honest way without tearing them down? And number three, do I have the ability to forgive others or my spouse and really let it go? Because intentionally and sometimes even intentionally, over the course of a lifetime together, we hurt each other. And unless we can learn to forgive one another, we get caught up and our marriage and our relationship begins to break down. For many of us, this kind of shift has to happen. And the only way this shift is going to happen is when the Spirit comes and illumines our hearts and our souls in such a way as to make the life and the work of Jesus Christ so real in our lives that we literally gain a whole new perspective. To help us try to understand this a moment, let me give you this example. It's not a far-fetched for me because I have a 15-year-old daughter, but just for the sake of argument here, and this really isn't me specifically, I want to ask you, think for a moment about a 16-year-old girl. Just an average 16-year-old girl. And imagine coming up to her and saying, Jesus died for you. Take comfort in the fact that Jesus died for you, 16-year-old girl. And imagine the 16-year-old girl hearing that and saying, well, that's great. I believe Jesus died for me, but what good is it if Jesus died for me if I don't have any dates coming up with the boy I really like? In other words, it's great that Jesus died for me, but if the thing I really want in my life isn't happening, then what good is it that Jesus died? And all of us could fill in our own what if. It's great that Jesus died for me, but I haven't gotten the job I really want, so what good is that? I haven't gotten the person I really like to respond the way I want. What good is that? I don't have the money that I need, so what good is it that Jesus died for me? And the point is, we have to get to a place where our hearts are overwhelmed with the reality that Christ died for us that begins to shift in our hearts and minds so that those what-if statements begin to be eliminated. Being spirit-filled means being in touch with the reality of Christ alive in us, which means if we go back to the 16-year-old girl for a second, if you say to her, why do you care what a silly, goofy, hormonal 16-year-old boy thinks of you when you are loved by the king of the universe forever, for all of eternity? Why does it matter what the 16-year-old boy thinks? What insane person would pit those two against each other and have the pimply-faced 16-year-old boy win? And yet, that's what you and I do all the time. So to have a heart of reverence for service is only going to happen when Christ becomes so real in our lives that we gain that perspective and that reality for our living, and our heart is gripped in that way. It's out of that sense of reality that we have a sense of reverence in Christ to serve one another. It's only going to happen with that spirit becoming alive within us. When that happens, then we can do what verse 21 tells us here this morning, which is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in marriage or in our life, we're so secure in this, even when criticism comes my way, doesn't matter. You know why? Because the one who loves me the most, Jesus, his view of me isn't going to change if somebody brings criticism my way. And because his view of me isn't going to change, I'm okay. My ego remains strong. 
At the same time, I can offer criticism to somebody else, and I use the gospel to help me be in check about how I give that criticism. Jesus has put up with me for so long, despite me turning against Christ so many times, God still graciously receives me. So how can I be harsher with others than what God has been with me? And once that reality sinks in, then I can offer criticism in a gracious, helpful way. Why? Because a whole new power, a whole new reality is operating within us out of reverence of what Christ has done for us. So what I want to ask you here this morning is where you're going to take one of those inserts that are in your newsletter. Statement number one, on a scale of one to ten, I want you to mark how strong you believe your power to serve out of reverence to Christ is right now, wherever you are in life right now. If you feel like I have hardly any power, this is not a reality in my life, you're going to mark one, two, three, somewhere in there. If you feel like, you know what, the reality of Christ in my life allowing me to serve this way, something is happening, I'm starting to do it, my spouse would tell you I am, seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. Or, but you're going to judge. You're going to put somewhere on the scale there, one to ten. So go ahead and mark that down. While you're doing that, we want to understand another way to cultivate our marriages is this. Live love as a verb and not as a noun. We want to live love as a verb and not just as a noun. Love is an action first. It is a commitment first and a feeling a thing second. An interesting thing happens when you choose to love folks with action. You will naturally come to like them better. We don't love because we like them. We like them because we love them. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here this morning. This is absolutely going to shock you, I know. If you are married, you're not going to like your spouse every second of every day. There's going to come some moments when you have to choose to love them in spite of them. For example, Jen and I, I love her a lot. I know that she loves me a lot. I can give you lots of examples of how we frustrate one another. One of the ones that's come up more recently, we've been married a long time, and I don't know why suddenly this is coming up, but, you know, we're different heights. I mean, I'm taller than my wife, Jen, and so I get a shower, and I leave the shower head angled one way, and for some reason, I don't think to adjust it for my wife for whenever she gets her shower. So she goes to get a shower, and the water sprays everywhere except on her and makes a total mess, and I've done this now a number of times recently, she hasn't been overly thrilled with me in those moments, and I can't totally blame her for that. At the same time, I've said, you know, Jen is one of the most gifted people in me at being present and in the moment, but sometimes she's so in the moment that she absorbs everything around her, so we will be having a good conversation, and I feel like I'm pouring my heart out to her about something, and I suddenly realize there's just a blank look on her face, and I'm like, honey, where are you right now? And she's like, oh, I'm overhearing the conversation next door that the kids are having, or if we're sitting somewhere in a restaurant, she like, here's the conversation at the next table. And I'm like, I'm right here while you focus, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, I get frustrated. We don't always like our spouses all the time, but we do love each other all the time. It doesn't matter if we like each other so much. It matters if we love each other so much. So here's a secret in our walk with each other and in our walk with Christ. The more we decide to invest in the other, the more you will love the other. 
and the more lovely they become to us. Why? Because the Bible says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Matthew 6, 21. Investing in others is creating your treasure. Why is it that parents love their kids so much? I mean, think about it. Kids are born and suddenly you have to provide for them and sometimes they get sick and they cry and they cost you money and even they cost trouble at times. Why do you love your kids so much? Because you've spent a lifetime investing in them providing shelter for them, buying for them, giving them everything you know how to give them. You've invested all of who you are in them. You invest so much, so you love so much. And it's the same in our walk with Christ and in our marriages. At some point, our marriages will not work unless we decide to consciously invest in them. At some point, our walk with Christ will not grow deeper unless we consciously choose to invest in it to put love into action, to make love a verb and not just a noun. It will be the oil that reduces the friction and the tension in life. So how do you rate there? Is love for you right now more of a noun or a verb? If it is more of a noun, you're gonna, this is another one to fill in. You're going to be a one, two, or three end of the scale. If love is a verb for you right now and you, you think your spouse would say, you know what, I'm doing a good job putting love into action, Give yourself an 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there. But mark it down. And then again, you're going to talk to your spouse or whoever later and see if they agree with you. Another way that we can cultivate a healthy marriage and to walk with Christ is this. Make marriage the number one earthly priority in your life. Jesus is always the number one overall priority. But marriage becomes the number one earthly priority in our life. Look what it says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul here is taking us all the way back to the beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Notice, God did not put a parent and a child in the garden. He put a man and a woman The primary relationship in our lives must be our spouse. That means we give our spouse the most attention, the most focus, the most most priority. We give our spouse even more priority, even more than our parents who we might love. Our parents are not number one. Even more than our children who we love completely. They're not the number one. Even more of a priority than our jobs. As much as we like our jobs, our jobs are not number one. Even more than our friends or our hobbies, which we might love. But they can't be number one. How much of a priority are our spouses supposed to be? Look what it says in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. It says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feel and care for their body just as Christ does the church. That's a pretty high commitment. As much or more than we love ourselves, that's how much of a priority marriage with our spouse is supposed to be. Think about it this way for just a moment. We know that our overall health is foundational to our well-being. But let's say that here's your health, and let's say you come along and you make your work even more important than your health. 
And so there comes a point, because you've elevated work as more important than health, that now because you're working all the time, you're not sleeping very much. And now because you're working so much, you're choosing to not eat very healthy. Well, what's going to happen eventually over time if you're never eating right and you're never getting enough sleep and you're never taking care of your body? Eventually, your health will begin to break down. If your health begins to break down, eventually your work will break down because you can't work if you're not healthy. So because you got the priorities out of balance, you lose everything. Marriage is the same way. If we are married, marriage is the center of our human relationship. It is our highest earthly relationship priority. And when that's the case, everything else falls into place. But if our parents are always more important than our spouse, if our children are always more important than our spouse, if our jobs are always more important than our spouse, guess what? Eventually, it all falls apart. So when Paul says a man must leave his father and mother and be united to one another, here's what he's saying. Be very, very careful that nothing, not even your parents or your children or your jobs, comes before your spouse or it will introduce a miserable pathology into your life. So I want to ask you this morning, how important, how much of a priority is your spouse or you can say your walk with Christ in your life right now. If other things are taking priority, you're a one, two, three somewhere. If you really believe and you're living out that it is the number one relationship in your life, you're an eight, nine, ten. At what level of priority is your marriage right now or your walk with Christ right now? Go ahead and fill that number in. And as you're doing that, the last thing we recognize about marriage to cultivate a healthy marriage is this. We let marriage sanctify us and not just make us happy. We let marriage sanctify us and not just make us happy. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Please hear this this morning. Nowhere in Scripture when it comes to our relationship and marriage are we told, oh, just have fun. Just consume what makes you happy and leave the rest alone. Jesus loves us in such a way that we become more holy, more radiant, more Christ-like. We reflect Christ more in what we do. This is a process in theology called sanctification. It is the process that helps us more and more and more to look like Jesus. And the best marriages help us to look more and more and more like Jesus together. We live in a culture right now that says, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you comfortable. That's all that matters. So if your marriage is working for you, stay in it. But if it's not working for you, discard it, get rid of it, leave it behind. Because you've consumed everything that makes you happy within it. I try not to do this too often, but I will confess this to you here this morning. Every now and then, I really love a good fast food meal. I'll just put that out there to you. I love the greasy fries. I love the soda. I love the burger. I don't do it too often, and as I've told you many times, this is a major reason I run so that occasionally I can do that. I love just a good fast food meal sometimes. But when I have consumed everything that I like about the meal, guess what's left? Literally a trail of garbage with the wrappers and the empty cup and the empty box. I got to throw away. I throw away what I don't want anymore. 
Many of us, for too often, have treated our marriages like this, or our walk with Christ. When we've gotten out of it what we think we want, we throw it away, treat it like garbage, leaving a mess behind. Marriage, more than any other relationship, lets us see the depth of our sin and our self-centeredness and our selfishness. And yet in marriage, God takes our selfishness and uses it against us to refine our rough edges and make us more like Christ himself. And the ironic thing is, if we do the hard work of working through the sanctification with God, in the long run, we discover the joy, the profound, utter joy that we wanted to begin with. And we end up not discarding lives behind us with a trail of garbage. Many of you, believe, I believe, know Emily Hoshar. She's now Emily Earp. She got married last summer. She, for a long time, was connected here with our congregation. Emily is one of the most courageous people I know. She has shared very openly and faithfully about her struggles with mental illness and depression. Not too long ago, she put out a Facebook post that described to me in a very powerful way what it means to be in marriage in this sanctification process that we're talking about that is way beyond my own comforts and me seeking to be happy, but what it means to serve the other and grow and look more like Christ in the process. I got a hold of Emily, and I asked her if I could share her post with you, and she said, absolutely, and here are her words. She said, when we, her husband Steve and her, said our vows, we obviously meant every word that we said aloud, but your eyes are open to a whole new version of reality when the words are put to the test and must become action. In sickness and in health normally brings to mind things like cancer and old age, but Steve is faced with the reality that in sickness for us means learning about mental illness, sitting in the reality of having a wife and suicidal crisis, of leaving his new wife at a psych ward every night for a week, of watching his spouse in pain and having no way to relieve it. It is a reality not many can prepare you for, but that he has been thrown into full force, especially this week. The day he proposed and on our wedding day, Steve washed my feet in the literal sense. This week, he washed them in the figurative sense and embodies that act symbolized. Our months together have held a lot of hardship, but I am forever grateful and in awe of the gift of marriage and thankful for the reminder of the selfless, devoted man I have the privilege of spending my life with. This comes through sanctification, not a pursuit of happiness. So I ask you this morning, last one, on a scale of one to ten, are you seeking just to be happy in marriage? That would be a one, two, three. Or are you seeking to be sanctified in marriage, 8, 9, 10, or somewhere on the scale? If it's just about us and our pursuit of happiness, low on the scale, otherwise higher. As we wrap up our time this morning, I want to say this to you. I don't know what state you come in this morning in your own walk with Christ and in your own marriage. I'm guessing that some here this morning feel like they have a super secure marriage, a super great relationship, a vital, healthy relationship. Awesome. May that continue. But I also have a feeling that there are some here or some who are watching or some who are part of other services that they got married and they were so in love and infatuated, but that feels like a long time ago. And now years later, multiple kids later, multiple jobs later, multiple bills later, with all the moving parts and all the tension, you wonder what happened. 
Can I say to us this day, it is never, ever too late. It is never beyond God's redemptive touch for health and wholeness to begin anew and afresh. And so I hope and I pray this day that out of this reservoir of God's love and the reverence for Christ, as we learn to again make love a verb and not just a noun, as we make Christ and our marriages the number one priorities they need to be, as we pursue sanctification over just happiness, that God will step in and once again bring wholeness and healing and joy. And I believe that as we ask God to do so, God will. So as we gather this day, it is my wish to you, not only this week, to have a happy Valentine's Day, but in the love of Christ, every day can be a new Valentine's Day, defined in the love of Christ rather than ourselves. Amen.